Let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 will begin in verse 46 this morning. We are looking at the Magnificat, part 1. Our key words for our worshipers and training are humble, holy, and mercy. We continue our walk through the gospel according to Luke. And if you recall from the beginning of what Luke has recorded for us, he is writing to one man named Theophilus that he might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught to him about Jesus the Christ. And so far, we've seen some very amazing things that God has done in and among His people. We looked at Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel as well as Mary's encounter with the angel Gabriel. One woman barren, one woman a virgin, both to find children within their wombs. And last week we looked at Mary traveling to see her relative Elizabeth and Elizabeth's song of great praise because the mother of her Lord has come to visit her. And we saw Elizabeth's song and her rejoicing for what God has done. The Holy Spirit caused Elizabeth to recognize that Jesus is her Savior. And she praises God in response to this great truth and she encourages Mary. (laughs) And so now this morning we look as Mary herself is overwhelmed with everything that has gone on, everything she was told, everything she recognizes that God is doing, and she breaks forth in a wonderful song of praise. This song is called the Magnificat. This is, this is the Latin term for the first line of Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord. So we're going we're gonna to spend two weeks on Mary's song of praise. This morning we're going to look at verses 46 through 50, and then next week we'll look at 51 through 55. <coughs> but let's read the entirety of Mary's Magnificat together, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich He has sent away. He has sent empty away. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Now, there are several things that I want us to see this morning as we look at Mary's song, particularly as we look at what stands out very boldly to me as, as we read through this. I think what we see here is a very good picture of several attributes of what it looks like to truly worship God. I'm going to look at five of those attributes this morning. Five attributes of true worship as we see them in Mary's Magnificat. The first is that true worship is rooted in the Word of God. One of the first things that you notice as you read the Magnificat is how thoroughly saturated it is in the Scriptures, particularly for Mary, the Old Testament Scriptures. As a faithful Jew in her day, this was the scripture that she knew, that she loved, that she studied with her family, that she memorized, that she she heard when they went to the synagogue, that they meditated on, they delighted in, and certainly the scriptures that they sang. Now, most obvious in Mary's song is its similarity to the song of Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you'd like, I, I'm going to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you want to read along, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. <coughs> I want you to hear the similarity between these two songs. <coughs> and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with his princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. You hear the parallel expressions between Mary's song of praise and Hannah's song. I just imagine as Mary is traveling to see Elizabeth, 
about a three or four day journey that she is thinking about all that she has heard from the angel Gabriel. She's considering all that the Lord has done and is doing in her and through her and with her relative Elizabeth and considers all of the ways that God has shown himself mighty and powerful throughout redemptive history. Not through military might and force, not through political power, but through unlikely infants in unlikely wombs. Remember, Hannah was Samuel's mother. She had no children. She was barren. And she was abused by other women because of it. And she prayed earnestly that the Lord would give her a son, and eventually he did. So she sings this song of praise. Now, of course, there is a marked difference between her song and Mary's. Hannah's is a shout of triumph over her enemies. While Mary's is a humble contemplation about the mercies of God in her life. But we can see it. Mary, Mary is thinking about what God has done. Thinking about what God did in Hannah's life. Perhaps even thinking of of Sarah and her barren womb, and now her relative Elizabeth. All barren women who God gave children to. And of course herself, a virgin, bearing the Savior of the world. I want us to think on this. Mary's Mary's song... As you, as you listen to the words of Mary's song, as you read the, this is not derived from some shallow teenage emotion. This girl knew the scriptures. And it's beautiful what comes out of her mouth, isn't it? Her worship is informed by the scriptures. It's saturated with the Bible. It's in harmony with the Bible. It proves her knowledge and her grasp of the Scriptures. Mary's song of praise is rooted in the objective truth of the Word of God and not in the subjectivity of her feelings. There's obviously a very clear principle here for us. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Let us strive every year we live to become more deeply acquainted with Scripture. Let us study it, search into it, dig into it, meditate on it until it dwells in us richly. In particular, let us labor to make ourselves familiar with those parts of the Bible which, like the book of Psalms, describes the experience of the saints of old. We shall find it most helpful to us in our approaches to God. It will supply us with the best and most suitable language both for the expression of our wants and thanksgivings. Such knowledge of the Bible can doubtless never be attained without regular daily study. But the time spent on such study is never misspent. It will bear fruit after many days. And as a growing Christian, I found myself, the more and more acquainted I am with Scripture, the richer my worship, the more rich my prayer life, the more acquainted with God I become. It makes sense, doesn't it? The more I know of what God has revealed of himself, the more rich and the more fulfilling my spiritual life. 
One of the things that I love to hear from, from you when you pray is when you recite the Word of God in your prayers. It's something we try to model for you as we pray. It's so important that our prayers, that our worship is saturated with God's Word. Now, this also points us to the importance of biblically rooted songs that we sing in our worship. Now, perhaps you've noticed, you've taken note, that we don't look at what's on the top ten charts for contemporary Christian music and sing those. Our standard for worship is not based upon what is popular. It's not to say that some of the things we sing won't be popular, but that's not our standard. Likewise, we hope that you notice that what we sing is rooted in the history of the church. We want to sing old songs and hymns and psalms from the Word of God. But we also want to rejoice in what God continues to do through the musical creativity of His people today and to sing new songs. So our standard for the things we sing as we praise God in our worship is not, is it popular or is it old or is it new? We want to have the same exact focus as we see Mary has right here. Is it true? Does it point to the objective reality of who God is and what God is doing? And I hope as we, we sing that you're thinking about these things, that as you sing the words of the songs that we sing in worship, that you think about what you're saying, what you're singing, thinking just from this morning, Jesus has broken the power of sin. It has been canceled. He has set us free. We're prisoners. His blood was that means. His blood makes the most vile, wicked, dirty sinners clean. His blood has been given for men like me. You think about that when you sing? Or God has held the oceans in his hand. He has every grain of sand numbered. He sets up kings and rulers and dominions and powers and principalities. All of creation will bow down to Him who is worthy of our worship. Behold our great and mighty King. Do you think like that? As we sing, is that what's going in your heart? Is that what's going on in your mind? Or do you think more like, Oh yeah, I, I like this one. This is this this one has a good tune. Oh, and it, Becky sounds really good right now. She's nailing it. She did a really good job on that. Man, that who's that guy singing behind me? He can't even carry. He can't carry a tune in a bucket. I wonder if I can harmonize this song. I, I think if I sing it in the shower, it's going to sound really good. I wonder. Did I turn off the oven this morning? I hope no one unplugged my crock pot. I want to make sure my food is warm when we get over there for our meal today. Is this what's going on in your mind and in your heart as we sing to God? We, we, we seek to work very, very hard to make sure our worship is pointing to the objective truths of the Word of God, that our hearts 
would be constantly soaked in what God has revealed about himself. And we, as God's people, we must work very hard to make sure that we're continually seeking to focus our hearts and our minds on what God has revealed of himself. So when we talk about preparing our hearts for worship, one of the ways that we do that is to ask God, surely we can't do this on our own, we must ask God to help us focus on the words of the songs we sing that we would have a greater satisfaction in God. That we'd have a greater understanding of God. That we'd have a greater grasp of the objective reality of who God is and what He has done in creation, what He has done in redemption. Pray for that. Ask God for that. It's really, really important that we do that. It's very important that we remove barriers in our lives that keep us from coming and being able to focus our hearts and our minds and our worship. If you come here so exhausted from the night before that you can't even hardly stand up, there's a problem. We need to have our lives in order as we come to worship together with God's people that all of our hearts, all of our minds are focused They're amazed at what God has done and is doing. And we bring that together in worship before the Lord. We need to ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to prepare us to worship Him. Pray for it. Pray for one another in that. Now, do we see anything in Mary's song or in the Psalms or anywhere else in the Bible that comes anywhere close to resembling these words? After all that we've been through, now you know I've doubted too. But every time my head was in my hands, you said to me, hold on to what we got. This is worth any cost, so make the most of life that's borrowed. Love like there's no tomorrow. Or how about this? So heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. And my heart turns violently inside of my chest. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way that he loved us. Whoa, how he loved us. Whoa, how he loves us. Love like there's no tomorrow? What exactly does that look like? How is that expressed in Scripture? Where exactly is that objectively rooted in the Word of God? Or even more simply, where's the Lord even referenced? How about heaven meeting earth like a sloppy, wet kiss? I will buy you dinner this week if you can show me that in the objectivity of the Word of God. Do you see? When we root our worship in the Word of God, it steers us clear of the trite, the clever, the nonsensical, even the silly. It focuses uh, focuses us on the objectivity of who God is, what God has done. He created all things. He sustains all things. He has redeemed us from the curse of sin. 
Why do we want to sing about anything else? It fills our soul to magnify God for these great things, just like Mary, just like we see in Mary. And so, first, our worship must be thoroughly saturated, full of the Word of God. It is rooted in the objectivity of the Scriptures. Secondly, we see in Mary's song an overflow of a Scripture-saturated heart. Look at verses 46 and 47 again. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The natural overflow of a heart saturated in God's Word is worship. Now, she uses the word soul and spirit, essentially talking about the same thing. The point here is every part of my being, everything that I am, worships and magnifies the Lord. All of my breath, all of my life rejoices in God, my Savior. This is the inner person as a whole. She is completely consumed with magnifying the Lord. She is completely enraptured in rejoicing in God. In other words, true worship is something that is God's doing inside of us. Not primarily something that we do externally. Worship arises from inside where the Holy Spirit dwells. It's not something you do on the outside. It's not a performance. It's not specific words. It's not even specific actions. Now, true worship will result in some of these things. True worship will overflow in worship of praise, into good works, into song. But it is something that is happening in our hearts. It is informed by our transformed minds. And it affects our actions. It affects our emotions. It is not those things. Those things are affected by the worship. So how does it work? The Word of God is intellectually processed in a renewed mind. The truth of the Word fills our hearts And our hearts bubble over in response. And the result is worship. It's praise. It's magnification. It's exaltation. So the mind takes in the truth. The feelings of the heart are captivated and affected by this truth. Then there is, perhaps not always, but there often will be an outward expression of that truth. There's a big crescendo. It builds. And the whole of us, the whole person worships in spirit and in truth. But but God brings it about. He affects our hearts with the objectivity of His Word. Now, let's be clear here. You, You can sing and read the Scriptures and pray and also not be worshiping. Because worship is first and foremost essentially an act of the heart, not something you do externally. So true worship is from a heart that is saturated in God's Word 
and the objectivity of the deep and sound doctrine of the scriptures, and it is filled with joy in who God is and what God has done and is doing. In other words, it is stirred with strong affections for God himself. So worship is a heartfelt longing, not for what God gives us, but for God himself. To see him and to know him and to be in his presence. Beyond this, there there is no quest. There is nothing higher. There is nothing greater. There is nothing that exists beyond this. Words fail. We call it joy. It's expressed like this, Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. These are words of worship. It's not a mere act of willpower that we perform by some outward act, but it's an overflow of the heart because of what God has done. This is expressed in our our mission statement as a church. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy. It's all over the scriptures. And we see that with Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's worshiping God with joy. The Greek word for magnifies, which is also implied in rejoices, is the word megaluno. Our word mega is rooted in that word. Mega, big, huge, magnificent. So what Mary is doing here isn't just an everyday expression of praise. She has considered all that God is doing. And she is brought to a place of mega exaltation. Literally, megaluno means to cause to swell, to grow, to get larger and larger. So when she says her spirit rejoices, in verse 47, it is implied that there is this sort of uncontainable joy within her, an unspeakable joy for what God has done. It rises from what her mind has comprehended, from what she's been told, and what she is starting to understand. She thought about what God has done historically. In the life of Hannah, perhaps Sarah, Elizabeth. She heard the words of Elizabeth reminding her once again of the significance of the child in her virgin womb. And it all came to a boiling point. An ecstatic joy comes from her heart. Now this isn't just a joy that comes when we're first saved. It starts then, but it doesn't stop. It's not a joy that's contingent upon our circumstances. That's why Paul can say Christians are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. 
That's why James can say, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. True worship is a way of life. It's not a temporary emotion. It's not circumstantial. How so? Well, because again, it's rooted in the truth of God that never changes. Salvation never changes. God's promises never change. The covenant work of God never changes. The Holy Spirit never leaves us. The Lord Jesus Christ is ours. He will never forsake us. So why should our worship rise and fall? Why should it ebb and flow? It shouldn't. True worship doesn't. That's why guys like Job can have all of his children die, all of his livelihood destroyed, excruciating pain, ravish his body, and yet still say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's true worship. If worship only happens for you on Sunday morning or when you go to a conference or when you're at a Christian concert, you may very well be deceived as to whether or not you're a true worshiper of God. I'm not saying we're always overwhelmed with emotion because of our salvation, but worship is not based upon the event that we're participating in or the circumstances in our lives around us. My heart should be captivated and encouraged by the objectivity of God and His Word. This causes true joy. Not always happy, clappy. Real joy. Joy that endures in trials and suffering because it is rooted in something that is right and true. That's a hard issue and it needs to be searched out. True worship is an overflow of the heart that is saturated in the truth of God's Word. Third, we see in Mary that her worship is humble. Look at verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. True worship is fundamentally opposed to a heart of pride. True worship is humble. Remember we saw several times already Mary's heart. We see it again here. Mary is expressing this idea of she, she recognizes all that God is doing in her and she has the attitude of me? Me. Me. Lowly Me. She has a humble heart. No thought of herself at all. A prideful heart is fully concerned about self. I want what I want when I want it, and therefore I cannot exhibit true worship because it's about me. It's based upon circumstances. So when things don't go the way I want them to go, I don't worship True worship is humble. You see how Mary describes herself? The humble estate of your servant. She's not calling herself humble. The second you think you're humble, you're, you're not. She's not calling herself humble. She's saying this is her position in life, her place in life. It's insignificant. 
Remember, she's a, she is, by all standards of the world, she is a nobody in a nowhere place. In other words, she's saying, he has looked upon the insignificance of me, a mere slave of God. Remember the word servant? We talked about this. Doulos. It means slave. She's describing herself as one who is subservient to God, a slave to the Lord. She is enslaved to Him. And I know we've done this before, but I can't get beyond it as I think about Mary. Consider her circumstances. A young teenage girl who is not even married yet, and she shows up pregnant. She has to explain this. And what's her response? She doesn't run away and hide in fear. Her response, I'm I'm a slave to the Lord and I rejoice in what he has done. That's humility. That is worship. I don't care what my circumstances are. If the Lord has ordained it, so be it. And I love him and I will do all that he calls me to do. That's worship. And it's important to recognize the second part of verse 28. She doesn't say, well, look at me, ladies. Look at me. God has chosen me. That's not her attitude. She doesn't think, well, of course he chose me. I'm pretty special. No, it's quite the opposite, isn't it? This is really the only brief glimpse that we see of Mary even looking at herself. And even then, what do we see? How could God ever notice me? I'm going to be called blessed among women forever? How could God have wanted to do this with me? Remember, this is the same perspective she had when she was visited by the angel Gabriel. True humility is shocked by commendation. A humble person is absolutely blown away when they are noticed by others, when God uses them in significant ways. This is the mark of genuine worship because a heart saturated by the Scriptures really understands who God is and who we are and what we are. And if we get that truth, if we understand that God is holy, 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 And that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were rebellious and lawless. We will be humbled. If we're not humbled by that, there's a huge disconnect. If we're not humbled by that reality, we don't understand how holy God is and how disgusting my sin is. Humility says, He who is mighty, the holy, holy, holy God has done great things for me, and holy is His name. So true worship, as we see in Mary's song, is humbled. Fourth, true worship is God-centered. True worship is thoroughly God-centered. It is based on the objective person and work of God. Look again, verses 48 and 49. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 50. 
You see, the Bible shows us that true worship is focused primarily upon God, who God is, what God has done, what God is doing, how he works. It's not, a, it's not about me and my relationship with God and my salvation and my joy and my relationships with other people. Do those things matter and are those things talked about in the scriptures? Yes, of course. But what context are they given to us in? The context of the reality that it's not about us. Here's something that should put all of us on our knees. God does not need you. And God would be perfectly just and justified in never saving you, but he did it anyway. So... It's important that we not be so focused on ourselves and our own salvation that we miss it. Miss what? Miss the why. Why did God save you? Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 tells us, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. I'd encourage you to read Ephesians 1. Why did God do what He did in redemption? That we would praise Him and give thanks to Him and worship Him for His glorious grace. In Romans 9, Paul writes that He has done this great work of salvation to make known the riches of His glory. You see, God's purpose, first and foremost, is all about God. The purpose of God is the same as the purpose of man. God's purpose, God's focus, God's greatest concern is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. This doesn't make God a megalomaniac. It makes God a keeper of his own law. Think about it. If God were to think more highly of anyone or anything other than himself, it would make him an idolater. God is the highest of all people, of all things, and is the sole recipient worthy of our worship. And therefore, he himself must be concerned with his own glory. And so, if this is God's greatest concern, it has to be our greatest concern as well. This is what we see with Mary. We see it all throughout the scriptures. We see it in one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, Romans eleven thirty three through 36. Paul finishes 11 chapters of telling us who we are in our sin and what God has done in salvation. And he, like Mary, gets to the end of all of this truth of the word and it just overflows in worship. And he looks at it all and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. Glory be to him forever. Amen. That is worship. And it is thoroughly centered on the person and the work of God. That's God-centered worship. It's all about Him. It's all directed towards Him. It's to please Him. And the result is that I am overwhelmed with joy because He has allowed me to do it. 
He has called me to do it. He has given me a heart that wants to do it. It's amazing. If your worship is not foundationally God-centered, it is not biblical worship. Lastly, we see that true worship is Christ-exalting. Look again at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, I want to say here Mary herself, in her own words, denies the Roman Catholic teaching that she is perfect in any way. She's not. She never has been and she never will be. The biggest critic of the Roman Catholic exaltation of Mary is Mary herself. She is very clear. She needs a Savior just like you and I need a Savior. If Mary was perfect, she had no need for a Savior. She would be just fine to save herself. But that's not what she says, is it? My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In other words, I am a sinner and I need a Savior and I rejoice in God who has provided a way of salvation for my sin. You see, Mary's worship exalts Christ because Mary's Savior is our Savior. Mary's Savior is that baby in her womb who was placed in her womb when God overshadowed her. Mary's Savior would be born to live a life in complete and total perfect obedience to the law of God, fulfilling it in every way. Mary's Savior would take on the full wrath of God on her behalf and behalf of all of His people that we need not endure the wrath of God on our own. Mary's Savior would rise from the dead and sit at the right hand of the Father from where He will reign and rule forever and ever. Now, Mary didn't know what all that would look like. And as we walk through Luke, we'll see that while Jesus was growing up and as his ministry began, she still didn't have any greater grasp on this reality than any of the disciples. But here's what she did know, and here's what we see that's central to her worship here. God is her Savior. Not her works, not her charm, not her looks, not her observance of temple rituals. God is her Savior. Brothers and sisters, if our worship is void of Christ, it is not true worship. In other words, if what we sing and what we pray and what we proclaim can just as easily be used in a Jewish synagogue or a Muslim mosque, we've not worshipped God for who He truly is and for what He has truly accomplished. The entirety of the Bible from start to finish has one main character. I'll give you a hint. It's not you. It's not me. It's not any of the prophets. It's not any of the apostles. It's Jesus. And if we miss Jesus, we don't just miss the mark. We miss the whole target altogether. Now, here's the difference between us and Mary. We're on the other side of the cross. And as we see the cross, we are able to worship God all the more. We know what he has done. And our worship should be all the more zealous because of it. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And it begs the question, does yours, does yours?
We end this morning in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for you, Christian. Does that not cause you to rejoice? How? How is God's mercy for me? By the grace of God, he has made his people to be recipients of his mercy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all because of Jesus and it is all for Jesus. How is it that I fear God? Well, because I know God is holy, holy, holy. And I know it and I trust it and I believe it because of the work that Christ has done. God has shown mercy by not crushing me this morning. His mercies are new every morning. Do you wake up in the morning and praise God? Do you lay down at night and worship God? The fact that you're here right now and not in hell, do you think about that? Do you praise God for that? Which one do you deserve? Which one do the works in your life and the longings of your heart actually warrant? God has shown great restraint in not crushing us. He has been so very merciful toward us. He has revealed himself to us. He has given us the joy of seeing him in his word as a thrice holy God, worthy of all our worship, worthy of our reverent fear, worthy of our affection. And as you rise up and as you lay down, do you worship God? By his grace, for his glory, God has been merciful toward us. And not only has he been merciful toward us, he has been pleased to cause us to understand his mercy, to delight in his great works of creation and redemption. As our creator, God has never owed us anything. We are a pot and he is the potter. He is able and just in doing all that he pleases to do with us. But what has he done? He's allowed us to live and to dwell, not under his judgment and wrath, but under his grace. God is for you. That's amazing. God loves you and cares for you, and his infinite mercy towards you has led him not to crush you, but to crush his son with his wrath instead. Does that not cause us to tremble? Does that not cause us to have a reverent fear for a holy God? Now, some of you here this morning are not Christians. This does not change the fact that God has called on you as well to worship. The fact is that you worship something. What is it? I will tell you that nothing that you will worship will satisfy you. Nothing will bring you joy and nothing will fill your longing apart from Jesus Christ. Only Jesus, only God, our Savior. The command from God in your life is to repent of your sin, to recognize, like Mary, that you need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus. Run to him. There is no other way. There is no other hope. So as we consider this great worship, 
in God's Word, I pray that our hearts would be saturated with the Word of God. That we would constantly see our hearts overflowing in worship. I pray that we would be a humble people, a God-centered people, a Christ-exalting people who are constantly amazed by the mercy and grace of God. God is for us, brothers and sisters. He's not against us if we are in Christ. This is worthy of great shouts of joy. We recently taught my daughter Evo's song, and it reminds us of how our hearts are to be oriented. We try to sing it each night before we eat dinner. It's a reminder that all of life is to be lived unto God, and that all of creation is called to worship God. It's, it's an important reminder of the source of all things, an important song of praise for the goodness and mercy and grace of God. Sing, sing it with me if you know it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for creating us. And thank you for not leaving us. Not forsaking us. But for loving us and being gracious toward us. And showing us your great mercy and not blotting us out forever but rather sending your Son to die on our behalf because we need a Savior. Lord, we rejoice that He, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has been crushed for our iniquities. I pray, God, that that truth, that reality from your word, would fill our hearts and our hearts would be so captivated by the truth of your grace and your mercy, your great works of creation, your great work of redemption in Jesus Christ, that it would overflow constantly in worship. That we would worship Christ. And that all of our lives would be so thoroughly centered upon you. That no matter our circumstances, when we weep, we weep in Christ. When we rejoice, we rejoice in Christ. And that we recognize that you will give, you will take away, and in all of it, you are holy, holy, holy. You are blessed, and you are God forever eternal, worthy of our worship. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we are able to sit here this morning with new mercies. Thank you that when we sin, you not snuff us out, but that you continue to carry us along. And I pray that you cause each and every one of us to persevere to the end. That as we come before you, that we would be pleased to hear, well done. 
my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of our own righteousness or our works. But because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Christ, our Savior. May we rejoice and delight in him. Thank you. We love you. We praise you. We rejoice in what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.